0: Oh my gosh, this is a great start. (laughs) Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 281 for January the 18th, 2023. My name is Wes Fryer, and I'm coming to you from Charlotte, North Carolina, where it is not actually snowing as my virtual background would make it look, but it uh, it has been another lovely December, January day. Uh, I told Jason I was just taking a nap before we started, so maybe it wasn't a good thing to let me take the microphone first. But joining me, as always, is Dr. Jason Knifer. I am so used to seeing a mane of hair, Dr. Knifer, that I almost don't recognize you.
1: Yep, How you? high and tight. And, in fact, I, last week I picked up my fourth haircut since I cut it all off. So I'm trying to commit to um, being a little... Um, a little more put together, you know, especially now that uh, it's one thing when you're the, 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 number two guy in the background, it's a whole nother thing when suddenly you're expected to be the public face of something, but Hey, I'm joining you tonight from Missoula, Montana, where I am the executive director of the Montana Digital Academy, which is Montana State Virtual School, uh, located in the beautiful University of Montana campus. And um, it's funny because last hour I was talking with my friends from NCCE, uh, planning a little bit about uh, our conference conferences going on in late March. By the way, uh, go to ncc underscore edtech on Twitter to find out more and register for said conference in beautiful Tacoma, Washington. But, and I'm the closing keynote for that conference, I might add, which is something I'm super excited about. I got a really fun uh, hour planned with my uh, a good friend and collaborator, Mike Agostinelli, um, who's been on the podcast before, but... Um, uh, I, I was talking about AI for the whole hour. So I feel like I'm just transitioning to now another hour where we will chit chat about AI for the whole hour. Although I did very purposefully go a little more minimalistic this week on the AI links, even though I feel like every week there's a new set of interesting things to know about AI technology. So Wes, I don't think the show's about AI, at least it's not right now. Uh, <laughs> give it 10 minutes, but, um, what is the edtech situation room all about?
0: Well, we are here as we have been for 280 previous episodes to talk about the tech news and to shoot the articles that we've seen in the past week through an educational lens or prism and give our analysis and basically just have an excuse to hang out for, you know, an hour, which, you know, I was thinking about it, Jason, this is just one of the wonderful continuities of life is that here we've uprooted our our family and gone across the country, but Hey, Wednesday nights are Wednesday nights, so yeah. it really is a blessing. Tonight, um, and if everyone will visit edtechsr.com slash links, <clears throat> you can access this Google Doc, which has uh, all of our show notes from episode 201, I think, to present. We had to switch uh, Google Doc. But we're going to be talking tonight, as Jason said, about AI, uh, Google, Apple, privacy, the tech correction or social media, as we have often Discussed it with TikTok and Twitter and other such uh, companies and articles. Uh, we're going to talk Microsoft, a little recap of CES, connectivity, copyright and licensing, and the wonderful miscellaneous category, in which it looks like we may talk about uh, the FAA's uh, travel chaos that happened a few weeks ago. And then also a uh, cyber war Ukraine article, which actually is a little old, but was pretty good. So we will end with some geeks of the week. Where would you like to start tonight, Dr. Neifert?
1: Well, Wes, uh, from one rabbit hole to another, I'd like to talk about new Apple stuff, which traditionally in the past might have actually sucked up a whole half an hour on our show. We'll see how quickly we do tonight. But um, there was a uh, I think a last minute announced event. Um, It was not something that we had several weeks of, of warning about, but there was an Apple event. Um, on Monday of this week, and um, there was more in that event than than was expected so um, i 'll just quickly highlight. Um, what is now available. Um, The M2 chip, which was released in 2022, that was, I believe, in just the MacBook Air, if I remember correctly. The MacBook Air M2 was available. And um, it was, you know, better than the M1. But part of the problem with Apple switching architecture as they have, and this is not really a problem, but it's a bit of a sales problem for them, is that there's no way they're ever going to repeat the gains of going from Intel to the Apple Silicon architecture. So it was just so monumentally ahead of where um, Intel uh, uh, was. I think Intel is, is, is making some, some inroads again, but the bottom line is that the M1 chip represents such huge gains in productivity, such huge gains in battery life, such huge gains in graphics performance. There are still issues with the N1 platform, but uh, I know that it's largely brought me back. And in fact, now that I think about it, um, all of my Mac life now is is has got an M1 chip in it, and and I love it. It's it's super great. But the uh, the four things that were released um, uh, include a an M2 Mac Mini, which uh, the Mac Mini platform did pick up. It was an early uh, uh, M1 product, and um, it is now uh, uh, starts at five hundred ninety nine dollars, which is just an extraordinary value. Um, uh, it's a hundred dollars less than the Mac Mini M1, um, at its base model. Um, it has two more graphic cores in it, although a similar amount of RAM and a similar amount of, of storage space. But, um, I am using, um, uh, the almost base model uh, at home of the M1, and it is not showing even the smallest sign of being anything but, uh, continue to be a, a, a real, Um, A barn burner from the standpoint of of being fast. So it starts at $599, $600 total. And then they span up to where you can um, also get um, an M2 Pro chip, which has 10 10 uh, CPU cores and 16 um, uh, cores of GPU and I believe also starts at 16 gigabytes of memory for just $1,300 which is actually, in my humble opinion, also a steal because the graphics performance on, on these machines is so extraordinary. I would also note for the record that um, in my mind uh, it, it's... It... You don't have to get a new Mac desktop every year. You just don't. That you buy, um, these, these devices and they last for, uh, 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 four or five years before you're even thinking about updating. And I know this is both true of both me and Dr. Fryer. We've utilized, uh, dated Macs. In fact, uh, Wes, what vintage of Mac are you broadcasting on tonight?
0: Well, Jason, thanks to your geeks of the week, which have breathed new life into my two thousand and eleven uh twenty seven inch imac uh I'm using my school m one Mac but I am using sidecar to connect to my really large screen so yeah it's a twelve thirteen year old machine that's yep. doing great, and I could continue to use it uh but actually you know being able to use it in an extended display you know setup is Is fantastic. So you're going to see a little bit of lag every once in a while with the Xsplit VCAM, you know, using my iPhone 14 as the webcam. Um, but it's tremendous and it's phenomenal. And I don't know when I would need to get rid of this, uh, computer since it, you know, continues to chug along, uh, quite well.
1: Yeah, totally. And that's the thing about Macs, right, is that they do tend to have longevity to them. And I know some geeks that are literally uh, utilizing um, uh, MacBooks with the, the plastic clamshell MacBooks from, from back in the day and are perfectly happy with it. Uh, in some cases, they've installed Linux onto it or utilized the, the hack we had talked about earlier about getting the new version on it. And it's not going to be very fast in comparison to the modern Macs, but they last for a while um and then two other uh, releases there's a Mac mini um i'm sorry a 14 or 16 inch MacBook Pro which now has that M2 chip on it um and that's in the um the uh form factor of the new Mac Pros so that's the the same as the the, the Mac Pros with the extended chips on there and these have uh M2 Pro and M2 Max chips on them and from all accounts there is a uh, um Um, uh, a pretty extraordinary uh, amount of 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 good design and and raw power in these new these new MacBooks. And the 14, for example, um, it it does start at a pretty significant sixteen hundred. I'm sorry, seventeen hundred dollars. But the bottom line, um, is that. And actually, I'm looking. Nope. I'm sorry. It starts at, um. It starts at $1,900, although I'm looking that New Egg is selling the newest model for $300 less, so it's already on sale. That's super interesting, but the bottom line is that this is the same thing, that you you invest $2,000 in a base model MacBook. Uh, unless you are the person that needs a new a laptop every, you know, one or two years because you like using the newest stuff, you're not going to have to update this for four, five, six years. Uh, and, and probably even then it's going to be battery life more than anything else that's probably going to get you to move. So that's an interesting piece too. And then one thing that actually tempts me for the very first time in the existence of this line, um, there is a new home pod. Which, uh, Apple has a, a line of smart speakers that are called, uh, HomePods. Uh, everyone, including yours truly, made fun of the original HomePod because it's a $300 freaking smart speaker, right? So what possibly what you need out of that? But, uh, they so happen to add in, um, a bunch of, uh, uh, interesting features to it, not the least of which is, um, uh the ability to kind of sense rooms so that it changes the way it directs music based on this but also they can hook up to uh, uh uh homepod minis which have uh sensors in them including moisture and temperature sensors and then it's just starting to blow my mind just a little bit about what's possible here but um I don't think I mentioned this in the podcast, but my wife and I are at the end of a three month project to update our kitchen. We've been literally saving up for, for, uh, seven years to, uh, we totally gutted our kitchen out during that time period. Uh, uh, we haven't had a kitchen, which has been frankly terrible. Uh, both my wife and I picked up COVID for the first time in November, had no kitchen during that time period. Um, and a lot of things have been really slow, but, we uh, have a shelf in there that we were going to put uh, – we were going to buy a really nice uh, a tabletop speaker, and we were thinking about a Bluetooth speaker to do that. We were looking for a nice one and, like, a really nice one, and, like an investment that's going to be there for 10, 15 years, and um, we found one, but – we're thinking about actually maybe getting the new HomePod uh, 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 for that because it, it's just a it's a nice speaker. We want it to go in our nice kitchen. So, Wes, a lot of me talking there. What's tempting to you as a, an Apple guy with what was announced by Apple this week?
0: You know, I, because I have a new phone, I'm <laughs> pretty good. You know, yeah. uh, I mean, I... It is. It is lovely to have the, the capabilities that, that come with a phone, a large phone that I can shoot all kinds of video with, um, you know, so honestly, I, I'm not tempted. Um, Peggy had put into the show notes a question as far as the mini, and I'm trying to look it up on the store right now, if you can order it with a two gig uh, memory. And yes, indeed, Peggy, you can get two. Oh, you're talking about RAM. Two terabit. <laughs> I'm so behind the times. Okay, <laughs> right. You can, yes, you can order a Comes standard with 512 gigs, but you can get it with one, two, four, or eight terabytes of data. So it's just phenomenal. I don't think I'm tempted at all. Um, you know, I've sort of violated my own rule by saying, oh, yes, older phones are great, but I, I don't know. I mean, the show is definitely an influence on on me. Maybe it's an influence on others, and it does... Um, you know, from time to time caused me to have some lust for other products, but I'm, I don't think I'm ready to jump at anything yet. Let me ask you the watch question. Cause I'm still on a gen three watch persuasive reasons to, to move to the newer watch. Um, the new
1: sensors, I think, are pretty nice. And this includes a blood oxygen sensor, which is a useful piece of data, especially in the era of RSV and COVID. Um, I would note, in fact, I was keeping a close eye on my blood oxygen as I was recovering for COVID because of my health sensitivities. And um, I, I do think it's worth it. But the Gen 6 is when the, the pulse ox is available. And as it turns out, you can buy those pretty decently used. And in fact, um, I had a I had a, a, a third-party band because I wanted something that was... Uh, this is a, a blue watch. I don't know if I'd buy the blue again. Um, I sometimes uh, commit some fashion crimes because my uh, blue watch and blue band uh, don't match what I'm, I'm wearing quite frequently. Um, this band is starting to fall apart. It's been almost... Three years, is that right? It has been almost three years since I purchased this watch. Um, I'm sorry, uh, two years since I purchased this watch. And this band has been on my arm every day. Not only does it smell uh, unfortunate, the bottom line is that uh, it was not a super nice band in the first place. But, um, you know, I think you could probably pick up a, a used sixth generation for a song.
0: I'd love to know what your, you know, choices are with bands and whatnot. I, uh, had picked up on sale at Target a band that really made my, my Apple watch look like, um, you know, a, a, a very nice metal, much yeah. more expensive watch and it worked great. And then over Christmas, it just stopped working. So I had to, to dig out my original band that came with it, which, which honestly is fine. And I don't know that it's really been that big of a deal, but, um, anyway, it's, yeah. I, I the home interesting. I don't have this as a geek of the week, but uh you know, for the last probably at least three years with a smart home, um I've had, you know, our Christmas lights come on automatically. I made a YouTube video over the three day weekend of <coughs> pardon me, my setup for how I use the Google Home smart speakers with these, you know, Wi Fi smart um Plugs, which incidentally have Chinese firmware that you know is in Mandarin, and I'm like hoping it's not malware. I uh, I can't even read it when when you know, I update it. Um, anyway, I posted that uh, to the web. I'm pretty pretty dog happy with my Google Universe and with all of our devices. And you know, once you're invested in an ecosystem like that, yeah. it's a significant thing. It's like switching phones or or switching computers. You know, you've you've invested in this. So I know you're you're uh, running a hybrid. Um, you know, in terms of Montana, Jason, I'm pretty sure you would be in a Guinness Book of World Records, number of screens in the home, number, number of active Wi-Fi devices. Maybe you're pushing. Yeah, maybe so.
1: Yeah. And of course, it doesn't help that, uh, you know, I buy random things off of eBay like this beautiful uh, Lenovo laptop, which I really had no need for, but it was a super screaming price on eBay. Um, Yeah, um, I and, and that's the ecosystem thing. I I don't think we've actually ever had this conversation. Um, Dr. Fryer and I are married, uh, not to each other, um, but to folks. We've got a
0: we've got an announcement.
1: No, yeah, yeah, it's by the way, (laughs) a special announcement this week. But I don't know about you with Shelley, but my wife Allison. I mean, she's tolerant of, of you know, my sometimes elaborate setups with things. But I also know that even if it's cool, if I don't set it up to be, you know, pretty user-friendly, it gets abandoned. And um, I also think that voice assistants have become slightly less uh, uh, interesting and maybe not part of my daily workflow as I expected them to. But, um, you know, I do have... Uh, two uh, uh, systems inside the house. Um, We do have a couple of Google devices and we have a a pretty decent number of Amazon devices. And, uh, you know, my wife is used to those Amazon devices. Uh, We we need to have a conversation. Apparently, um, the new HomePod, uh, the big home, $300 HomePod, is a, a a better Siri experience, and they keep updating that firmware to make it a better Siri experience, but the bottom line to me is that like I'm not going to make that decision without having a long conversation with 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 Allison because you know obviously it's left up to me to come up with the technical things in our house, and she is a pretty solid nerd in her own right, just not the technology variety so um the uh, uh, you know, I'm left to do that, and so one of the decisions we're gonna have to make is that if we do put a really nice HomePod speaker in our kitchen, our our brand new kitchen, it might be super cool. But if she doesn't use it, then that's you know that's a lost opportunity. So that'll be one of the ways we'll have the discussion in my home.
0: For the record, Jason, isn't your mom the one with the YouTube channel about quilting or something?
1: It's not my mom. It's Micah Gustinelli's mom, actually. Um, But nerd does run our family. My mom was the first person, uh, uh, one of the first people in Great Falls, Montana, to run a computerized bookkeeping business in the 1980s. And um, uh, in fact, the computer she was using was so old, it was running CPM, um, (laughs) which was kind of a pre-DOS operating system that kind of worked like DOS, But was, yeah, she had something called a K-Pro4 back (laughs) in the day uh, with its 10 megabyte hard drive that you could only afford used. Like that was, you know, that was the early days
0: for her on the internets. Hey, welcome to not only Peggy George, uh, but also Betsy Springer, who's joining us again. And look at this. Betsy bought an iPad for her daughter for Christmas on Swappa after she heard us plug the website here on the show. And that is is absolutely fantastic. Um, Jason, Peggy is asking, should she be using Swappa for getting a newer Apple Watch? Well, first of all, I was in a, 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 a,
1: a virtual uh, happy hour with Betsy earlier tonight uh, with the Digital Learning Collaborative. So it's uh, it's been a good meeting day for me today. Um, the Peggy, I, I think, the, yeah, that's where I would buy it. I've had 100% luck on Swappa and I've bought maybe 12, 13 things there. Some of them for me, I bought my wife's um, uh, updated iPhone on there. It was about a year used. My parents' phones come from there. um, So my parents' tech come from there. And then I bought an iPad there. Um, um, Yeah, I've had a great experience there. You want to look around a little bit. It's like any other social uh, selling site like that, that you want to be thoughtful about. Uh, you know the, the who you're buying it from, but Swappa has all sorts of guarantees built into it, and um uh I, I usually find if I shop for a couple of days or even a week or two, I just wait for the right price to come along, then I'm good to go.
0: I uh, would definitely echo what you said as far as just like with uh, Airbnb, um or you know I don't do a lot of shopping on not Etsy, but um but where what's the auction site? Man, I'm telling you, the brand you is going. Thank you, eBay. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah, you 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 want to be um, aware of that um, in terms of your version, Peggy. Just I think if you look in your if you're in your Watch app in your iPhone, it should tell us you know what you have. Um, I don't think really the version two is worth staying with. So I'm on a three, and I'm super happy with it. And we've got you know members of our family on all the other versions in addition to that. So that's why I'm just wondering: do I do I need to update? And I know the sensors and stuff like that would be cool. But I mean, at this point, it's not um, it's not going to make that much of a functional uh, difference. So, all right. Well, hey, there we well, go talking Apple stuff. Oh, there's more. Yeah, let me make one more
1: comment here that that's more directly related to schools. I cannot think of a better bargain than a five hundred and ninety nine dollar. Mac Mini uh, M2 that even in 8 gigs of RAM, and by the way, I have used, I mean, I would be the guy that would usually get 16 gigabytes of RAM on something, Um, and in fact uh, now that I think about it all, but one of my Mac devices does have 16 on it, but I did buy a MacBook Air last year, a personal one, um, uh, on super duper discount, uh, even though it was new, and the thing that was super great about it was that it only had 8 gigabytes of RAM, and I can't tell. I can tell the difference between an 8 gigabyte Windows laptop and a 16 gigabyte uh, Windows laptop, because of the unified memory architecture in the new Macs with the Apple Silicon, it's a better experience with less RAM. And so, um, you know, I know that uh, Macs have had a troubling past with a lot of tech directors because of their sheer expense. But I think that you can legitimately buy a five hundred nine dollar M one uh a Mac mini. I'm sorry, M two Mac Mini, and by the way, the M ones are gonna start going on huge discount too, which would also be a fabulous deal. Um, and you could get not five, six, seven years out of service, but at the last three years people are complaining how slow it is. You can legitimately get five, six, seven years of high end. Uh, power user experience with that particular uh, 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 platform. And um, I'm just really excited about the notion of of being able to buy this so inexpensively, which I think is clearly aimed at schools.
0: Absolutely. All right. Well, because I know we're going to get into AI and the tech corrections, we only have like 300 articles. No, not that many, but we have a, a lot of them. Uh, I want to just jump down to the one that I threw into the miscellaneous. This is an excellent, excellent article, Uh, and it's about cyber war, Russia and the Ukraine. This comes to us actually from Microsoft, from Brad Smith, who I do not know, uh, but is identified in the byline as vice chair and president. Uh, It's called Defending Ukraine Early Lessons from the Cyber War. Now, this is actually an article from June. So a heck of a lot has transpired in Ukraine, um, you know, since June. But I, I don't know, but for myself, I think I tend and have tended to not think quite as much about Russia's cyber capabilities. I think that maybe a lot of folks just the hoopla over the 2016 elections and Brexit and so many, you know, things, the, um, uh, you know, re- the investigations, um, that, that we had into uh, all of that kind of stuff, you know, sort of washed over and it, it what are they up to? Wow. This talks this from a historical standpoint, because I do love history. Um, it talks about the beginnings of different wars and how it has taken time to go back to see exactly how did, you know, American Civil War start and how did World War One start and um, what happened with World War Two and, and how did you know Germany justify the invasion of Poland? And so that's what it's telling a story about with Ukraine in terms of the cyber operations. But. Um, it, it's talked about a lot of capabilities and how this is, this has shifted and changed, um, how cyber, you know, is a persistent and and ubiquitous threat. This is not something that is just unique right now to the fact that Russia is having an offensive war against the Ukraine. And I think it's super important for us to understand this because we are literally not only in the middle of a, of like a psychological operation where agents of China and, and, uh, you know, Russia. And we are as well. Like we're we're conducting different kinds of cyber operations as well as psychological operations, but it's it's in this landscape that we are all living in and we're consumers in, and it is just it's just really wild. So anyway, I wanna wanna recommend that. And I do think that it seems that people are surprised. I think I've read some other articles, maybe I've shared them in the show that Russia hasn't been able to 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 launch more devastating attacks but I think some of that has to do with how Putin didn't really talk to a whole lot of folks apparently before you know starting the uh, the attack and you know cyber operations different from kinetic operations you know you can't really just say you know okay let's go and it it ta- it takes build up and in, in terms of what people have to do to Compromise systems and, you know, be able to deploy things. And so it's, it's uh, something that, that could take more time, but it just, it continues to fascinate me that there is this intersection with the conversations we have as teachers and administrators and just also members of our family about things like internet safety and passwords and protecting ourselves Um you know and and i don't know that independently any of us are going to make any kind of significant change in the broad scheme of things with any password managers and security that we you know put in place but we certainly can do positive things for not being the victim of identity theft and possibly you know avoiding a lot of real uh painful experiences for for ourselves and for members of our family so anyway i thought that was a very worthwhile article. And it's just really, really well-written. And it's interesting. I mean, of course, with Microsoft, they they talked about how the on-premise systems are the, the things that they're most focused on and that the cloud-based systems are more secure. And from a school standpoint, to just grab my tech director hat off of the shelf there. I mean, transitioning my previous school where I was a tech director for four years from a situation where we had something like, I don't know, 15 or so on-premises servers to just like, two or three and everything else was running in the cloud where, you know, dedicated professionals that were able to have teams 24 seven patching, maintaining, checking for cyber intrusions, you know, basically defending the gates. That's just super important. So if your school happens to be one that still has a a number of on-premises systems for, for instance, uh, security, you know, for, for, uh, local retention of uh, surveillance video and, you know, opening and closing doors, um, things like that. There's there's reasons why you need to have some on-premise machines. And there's also vulnerability that you have when everything's in the cloud and it's all dependent upon an Internet. And, you know, you want things to still work when the Internet might be interrupted for a little while. But anyway, all those things are important to think about. I'm happy to not be responsible for those things in my school anymore and just be responsible for our house. Um, but there's, you know, considerations to think about there too, as far as our homes, you know, the more digital we become and uh, the more dependent that we become on technologies.
1: Well, and um, we talked about this a little bit last week, uh, you know, both Dr. Fryer and I both strongly recommend that you use a password manager and uh, uh, our previous recommendation, which was last past, something that I was paying money for monthly, um, has, has, has had some issues, but it just, it, I, I it, it's so in the weeds, right? Chances are, if you were not reading technology media, you would have never known that LastPass was hacked and what that has mean for that. But it just tells you the complexity of this, right? Like if you're anything like, uh you know, anyone that's decently net connected with things like your finances, the really bottom line um uh, uh is that there's a lot of risk out there and the more you can do to just be thoughtful about how you're doing things and limiting your access uh, to services using good passwords uh using a password manager not last pass to be able to take care of that um I, it's a really important part of this and it's all related to that right like these are all uh it's a big macro thing that's going on in the war in ukraine but the other half of that is is what's happening daily in people's personal lives
0: And we will do the deep dive this time. I think we talked about last show. To be clear, the LastPass um, archives or or whatever were breached, but everyone's passwords were not in the clear and and haven't been compromised. But any password that you had is basically in the hands of bad actors now. And because a lot of data there was saved in the clear, they're able to see which archives had the most – attractive targets or the the, the most uh, possible uh, accounts that could be breached. And so they can use brute force techniques um, in order to crack that password. And so that speaks to the importance of the master password, the importance of the uniqueness of the password, but also needing to have a password manager that can help us readily keep track of the passwords that we have changed, etc. I'm very thankful at this point that LastPass was the password manager I used professionally for my last job. So basically, that's all stuff that I'm not having to worry about anymore. Um, But yeah, it's, uh, it's still recommended that we use a password manager. Choose wisely. And, uh, you know, anything can be breached. One of the articles I shared about Chinese hacks, I think it was a Wired article a couple uh, episodes ago. I mean, it almost makes it seem like game over because they have compromised so many different things and so many different systems that are just, you know, vast. But anyway, we, we can't give up and we need to continue to try to do our best to protect our stuff and also talk to students about this, because this is a major, major uh, employment opportunity in the world of cybersecurity um, you know, not only for Space Force and military operations and Homeland Security and people that are in law enforcement, but anybody who's part of any organization. And I, we've, I said this because I read it a long time ago. But in the not too distant future, maybe now, just like boards need finance experts and people who you know are savvy about uh, physical security and other kinds of things, depending on the organization, we're going to have, have to have cyber. Uh, experts and even if it's the person to be able to ask questions you know about penetration testing about the ways in which um you know servers are tested and and secured and things like that it's important to have that knowledge and uh you know it's not something that's just going to be for a very very limited number of people a lot of folks need that personally everybody needs that personally and a lot of people are going to need that professionally as well okay Jason, where well, would you like to take us next? Well, I have a suggestion.
1: There's a couple of, of interesting well, – one's interesting, one's funny article about copyright and licensing. And um, um, then I think we should uh, dive into the tech correction social media stuff. So Great. Uh, two quick articles. Uh, I know one you'll have a lot to say about, Wes. Um, John Deere uh, announced that they have finally relented and they're going to allow farmers – um, to fix their own tractors after all this is from Ars Technica on on January 9th and this has to do with the so-called right to repair and something if you work in in IT in your district you know you're going to know exactly what we're talking about but um there's been a kind of an evolution over the last 25 years computers went from being absolutely in 100% um uh, uh, uh kind of user repairable, Pack, like packable. Could, yeah, really. It's uh, both both ways, right? You could fix it, but also you could uh, upgrade it. You could extend it. You could switch parts out, put a better video card in, uh, put more RAM into your computer, and slowly over time, computers have become less and less and less repairable. But what's com- making that complex is that. Um, it's not just the fact that they're hard to repair in some cases or, or, or impossible in, in others, but rather it's that the software doesn't allow you to do it. If you've ever owned a, a printer where uh, uh, they had a microchip built into your uh, print cartridge and then try to use a third-party cartridge, in some cases you can't use it at all. In others, you're warned that you're using a non-standard part that violates your warranty. Well, that's become the reality in an awful lot of um, uh, 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 vehicles, and in particular, um, and I know this is the, the case of a lot of other uh, equipment manufacturers. John Deere uh, had kind of software locked their tractors, and not only didn't make parts available, like OEM or original equipment manufacturer parts available for sale, um, the the manuals that you would need to 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 be able to figure out how the systems worked. Um, We're not available. And that has officially ended
0: as of January 2023. And what's important to know from this is John Deere didn't suddenly, you know, have, you know, have a leadership change and decide, wow, you know, Steve Wozniak was right. We should be able to to hack and, you know, do whatever we want to our devices. Uh, This has to do with the Biden administration and uh, executive orders to the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission. Uh, calling upon them to prevent, quote, unfair anti-competitive restrictions on third-party repair or self-repair items. Um, and it's basically, as the article said, um, actions in advance of federal rulemaking. So Apple, and we've talked about this too, and I have not read this analysis, but but Apple has allowed for things to now be user repairable that before wouldn't. But when Jason and I have taken a look at some of this, it's obscenely complicated beyond what Probably 99%, 99.5% of the population out there is going to want to do. And I think perhaps Apple was you know reading the tea leaves and seeing what was going to come down the pike with that as well. And so they have been able to make some things user repairable. But doggone it, you're in some cases absolutely not going to want to do right. that. But I think it's a, a positive move. Um, Does this mean that our printers are going to suddenly, you know, have open, you know, ink cartridges that are going to work and and all that kind of stuff? No, it's it's uh, pretty fascinating to see how intellectual property cross sects with with hardware, with, you know, business models of uh, of different companies and things like that. I know we are super happy. Did you tell me about HP subscription model printing or did I hear about that somewhere else? Maybe I heard about that from somebody else. I feel like we've talked about that. Yeah. Anyway, my wife said like last night, because she has to print print a lot of things for her fifth grade class um, and, and take school. She just loves having essentially is unlimited uh, color and, and black and white ink, which we've never done before. But we're on the subscription model where the, the printer is smart. And if it's running low, it automatically orders it. You know, we pay like three or four dollars a month or something incredibly reasonable. But of course, if it's not an HP cartridge, then, you know, it's going to know it and detect it. Anyway, we're very happy with HP with this with this setup. But that's another another intersection there. So, yes, good, good decision, John Deere. But thank you, Biden administration, for really pushing that. And it was really a response to the uh, anticipated rulemaking that would be coming down the pike from federal agencies.
1: Thank you. And I knew you'd have more great information about the right to repair stuff. Um, the other thing I want to highlight just because, uh, uh, I think it's funny. Um, Belarus, uh, has legally or as legalized pirating media from basically countries it doesn't like. And that list is probably basically everyone except for Russia. So I actually have some experience with the country of Belarus. And in 2003, I was a teacher and debate coach in Great Falls, Montana. And, um, uh, the, uh, we applied for what was called an Open Society Institute International Debate Exchange. And so they were sending debate teams across the country to, uh, uh, countries throughout Eastern Europe, uh, for the purposes of, uh, you know, uh, engaging in international conversation. And our team, uh, won that one of those slots and we, Had, uh, Belarusian debaters and coaches visiting, uh, Great Falls High School, uh, for three and a half weeks. And then in the spring, um, I joined up with a parent, um, uh, and we, uh, chaperoned, um, uh, uh, five debaters of of kids from my debate team, um, to uh Gomel, Belarus, where we stayed with the same families of kids that came with us. It was one of the extraordinary events of my life. I'll never forget it. Um, but part of it is now I know an awful lot about that country, and I would say that uh. uh uh, Belarus isn't really on the United States' Christmas card list. So, uh, for a variety of reasons, it's been challenging there. Not for, uh, uh, less reason than for the last 20-something years, they've had, uh, what has effectively been, a- an authoritarian ruler, uh, in that country. His name is Alexander Lukashenko. Well, I, I mention this because one of the things that, so they're announcing that they're, that it's now completely legal there to, um, uh, 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 pirate anything from an unfriendly country, which would include basically most of the countries that are creating any kind of media, um, uh, including software uh, uh, outside of Russia and Eastern Europe. But um, I laugh at that because we stumbled into something really interesting when we were in Belarus, which was we went to a, a kind of a grand mall one day. It's not quite, it was, it's, it's kind of like a department store, except that there were a couple of different department store or like sub stores inside the store. So it's like a big department store, but then there was a separate store on the inside. And so we went that day, um, to the record shop, which was a, a CD shop in, in 2004, and they were selling, um, we don't know for sure, but I'm assuming like knockoff copies of albums for a, for a dollar American apiece. Right. And we were just blown away by this, right. $1 CDs. This is pre Spotify. It's pre streaming media. So getting what is effectively a 15 or $20, uh, 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 thing for a buck was, was itself really extraordinary. Well, so, that was the first uh, week we were there. We discovered that. And then a couple weeks later, we were in a store that was kind of like the local um, I don't know like nerd shop, right? They sold computers. They also sold uh, a variety of, of media. And one of the media they had was um, um, uh, they had these these CDs. But they weren't CDs, they were actually CD-ROMs, and they didn't include an album, they included everything the artist has ever done, in MP3 format. So you could go and buy, you know, the David Bowie CD, and it was every album David Bowie ever put out. Or you got the Beatles album, it's every album the Beatles ever put out, and um, they were selling those for like 75 cents. So... The irony of you know Belarus taking this broad action when it's clear that they're not enforcing copyright all that closely in that country, anyways.
0: So, Jason, you have inspired me also to <clears throat> share a couple piracy stories, and perhaps we'll have a show title "Stories of Piracy." In 2007, Shelley and I had a chance to travel to Shanghai, China, for the first time uh, for the Learning 2.0 conference, and Alan November was there, and he had his son with him and Shelley and Alan's son were not speakers in the conference. And so they had an opportunity to run around to different stores. <clears throat> and one of the things that they discovered were uh, a variety of stores that not only sold CDs, but also DVDs with lots of different, um, you know, Hollywood Hollywood films. <clears throat> and what I would say to, you know, belarus and thinking about this is just be careful when you get on an international flight and when you're going to cross customs because one of the things which i would be really surprised if they don't still look at uh is customs officials would be media and and whether or not you know said said media you know is is legally produced um and so anyway the other story that and i won't you know seeing the the transcription power which we talked about last Last week, you know, we've been aware of this for a while. If you're watching on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can turn on live transcriptions. And anyway, all of our words are there. So I'm not going to be using names. I'm not going to say the name of the person. I'm not going to say the name of the organization. But a fairly significant organization that I worked for in the last, uh, you know, 25 years uh, had a staff member who was becoming somewhat notorious for selling uh, pirated versions of, you know, DVD series. We're talking Lord of the Rings, extended features and all of this. And this was a very savvy, you know, tech person. They were eventually fired, thankfully, um, as you know, happens with a lot of different situations that involve, uh, HR and things like that, you know, the way that things happened and, and, and reasons are not necessarily announced, but I was, I was glad when there was accountability for that because it was a ridiculous, right. Absolutely ridiculous. Um, but there was a period of time with Napster and, and all of that, that there were a lot of folks that were, um, on the wrong side of the law when it came to things like intellectual property. So I think it's good in today's era that I don't think youth are faced with it. I know that, uh, I don't even know the names of all the file sharing, you know, programs, LimeWire, you know, um, yeah. Napster, those, those were the things back in the day. Uh, really hazardous in terms of the malware and, and viruses and, and dangerous and stuff like that. Yeah, the good old days. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Definitely the old days. Yeah. So anyway, yep, some stories of piracy. So I'm, I will not be traveling to Belarus ever, I think, in my life. Uh, but, uh, that's pretty interesting that you had that fascinating, uh, debate experience. And, uh, anyway, the tangled webs we weave. Well, Dr. Knifer, I think we had better, good grief, we have like 20 minutes left. We, we gotta get into tech correction. We gotta do some AI. So where, where do we go next?
1: Well, on a lot of this stuff will hold, but there was really one really interesting story uh, last week that, um, that I wanted to cover and we just didn't get to, but, um, Seattle public schools is suing social media companies for allegedly harming students' mental health. Uh, this is from CNN on uh, January 9th. Uh, Samantha Mur- Murphy uh, Kelly reporting for CNN Business. And the uh, the bottom line is that uh, Seattle filed a lawsuit against several big tech companies, includes uh, Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat, YouTube, and Facebook. And the claim is, is that... Uh, 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 sorry about that the uh that it's making their jobs harder um because teens have access to all the social media that um you know make things uh, kind of difficult to deal with so um it's it's just it's a fascinating argument to me because factually i think that's true i think that social media companies have uh, in a lot of cases made student mental health more challenging, which of course makes teaching and education way more challenging. And we don't really talk about uh, the causes as much as I think we maybe should in regards to the current mental health crisis that really is impacting K-12 schools uh, across the United States. Um, But it's certainly interesting that, um, that uh, uh, this is the angle that Seattle Public Schools is taking. So I guess any thoughts there, Dr. Fryer, about uh, either the broad claim or the strategy here?
0: I think it's fascinating. You know, we need some accountability for misbehavior. And um, and we need to look at <clears throat> both the intended and unintended consequences of social media, right? How long has it been since we most of us watched The Social Dilemma? um on Netflix and there was you know hand ringing and people waving you know their hands in the air and then nothing has changed um which is kind of the the pattern with uh, Francis Haugen testifies before congress and oh my gosh facebook and you know we go back to life as usual so um i think we need to to have some privacy law in our country <clears throat> and i think that um there needs especially when It comes to things like these allegations that were brought up a few years ago in the social dilemma that Facebook, i.e. via Instagram, you know, was very aware of impacts that were happening to especially teenage girls with respect to uh, suicidal ideation and actually suicide attempts and things like that because of the ways that the algorithm was, was, you know, sharing the sharing content and, and was operating. So um, I'm going to jump down and we'll do two wins quick uh, Ars Technica on January 11th uh, updated us about parlor. Uh, you know, it's been a while, what it was, is it, is it two year anniversary since January 6th? It's been two yeah. years.
1: Yep. It has. Wow.
0: How time flies. Uh, so, um, you know, after January 6th, there was a lot of talk about parlor and these, you know, and there still is about alternative social media platforms. Uh, this article says that parlor the parlor owner laid off 75% of its staff and has only 20 employees left. There is a, we haven't even talked about him and I, I hesitate to even mention his name, but I will. Um, but you know, Kanye West was going to go ahead and purchase parlor. Uh, and then that fell through. And I, anyway, and I've listened to some podcasts relating to, to that and anti-Semitic things. And it, wow, what a, what a tangled web that is. But uh, Parlor is evidently not going to be the Twitter replacement uh, doing pretty poorly. And if you haven't investigated that, this maybe someday I'll teach a course that really dives into these kinds of things. But as a case study, you know, January 6th and the ways in which social media was used. And then in the case of Parlor as a platform where a lot of folks that were at the Capitol, you know, protesting and illegally trespassing and, and also doing other illegal acts, They hadn't secured their data, and there was just open, downloadable troves of video as well as photos and images, which were grabbed not only by law enforcement but by also, I guess we could say digital vigilantes, you know, good – good. I think in this case, well-intentioned citizens who wanted to help bring these people to justice. And yes, indeed, that media has played a critical role in many of the – the, the indictments and prosecutions that we've seen following January 6th. So anyway, that was a little update about Parler. And then uh, this is a fantastic article by Matthew Ingram. Matthew Ingram was one of the employees of GigaOM. As I've mentioned before on the show, I recreate the GigaOM experience with my own Twitter list following the, the GigaOM authors. But he he penned this article for the Columbia Journalism Review um, on January 12th. It's called Is Twitter Dying? And what would that mean for journalism? And again, we, we live in such a, a polluted and fractured media environment that, you know, sometimes it's a little hard to keep track of things. And he's done a great job summarizing, you know, what's the big deal with Twitter, with Elon Musk and and what he's done and, you know, the, the trajectory there. Uh, and he also documents talking about, uh, I don't know if you realize this, Jason, in November, Twitter was losing $4 million a day. And, you know, this idea that they're going to be able with verification or with these other, you know, kind of crazy ideas. I mean, investors are thinking that Elon Musk has a golden touch, right? And he's going to, you know, just with, as he did with SpaceX and just as he did with, with, um, Tesla and, and his other companies, you know, he's going to, he's going to be able to turn things around. Well, you know, $4 $4 million a day is a lot of money to lose. And there was another article I don't think we put in about, you know, the, the, the debt note that is about to come due. Um, the amount of money that Musk has to have for debt service is really, really, you know, astounding. But the point that he makes here, and he quotes Dan, Dan Gilmore, who's a journalism professor at Arizona State, um, you know, his argument is that journalists should avoid centralized platforms like Twitter altogether. Um, that Musk, I'll just read this, in demonstrating his contempt for free speech in general and journalism in particular with his behavior at Twitter, has shown why, quote, it is foolhardy for anyone to rely on centralized platforms to create and share, to create and distribute vital information. But what Ingram points out is that journalists want their stuff to be read, right? Uh, news organizations need to reach an audience. And so Twitter is still an extremely important and relevant platform for being able to get eyeballs on your content. And so there are ethical and moral questions that not only journalists face, but what I think we do as educators and citizens about the platforms we're going to use and who we're going to support. For the record, I no longer pay for Twitter Blue. Um, I did enjoy being able to see who people I follow the articles they were looking at, but I'm, I'm not going to pay a penny to Elon Musk. I'm not going to buy a Tesla. I mean, like I'm, I am so sickened by what we've seen about this human being um, that I don't want to support him in any way. I'm thankful that SpaceX has moved forward, you know, our space program and commercial space and things like that. But, you know, I, I am in the process of, of, I believe doing a full transition away from Twitter. Uh, to Mastodon as well as Facebook, uh, Instagram, other platforms. So fantastic article, great summary of all of what's happening there. Um, but also, you know, pointing out that really, a lot of this hinges on what journalists do, because I believe, if the majority of journalists would abandon Twitter, Twitter is going to be dead because that is the, one of the reasons why it is such a big deal is that you know mainstream journalists w- can monitor it and, and articles and things like that, hashtags, things that trend there can go mainstream. At the same time, if Twitter continues to lose $4 million a day or more or whatever, I mean anything in that ballpark, it's hard to imagine them being able to survive for very long. So let's all realize as educators, many of the folks listening to this podcast you know, are probably Twitter users and may rely on it that it is very probable that Twitter is not going to continue to survive indefinitely into the future just from a financial standpoint. They, Yes, they could declare bankruptcy, and that might happen, and there may be still a resurrection. And it, who knows? Maybe it is going to stick around. But I think there's ethical issues and moral issues uh, for us each to wrestle with in terms of the platforms we use, but there's also real practical ones in terms of reaching an audience. So any thoughts about that, Dr. Neffrey? Um, yeah, I
1: mean, I, I you mentioned it earlier, uh, Wes, that you know the 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 myth of Musk is 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 very very powerful, and he has taken some companies and, and definitely turned them around. Um, you know, some might question their long term viability, and there's debates to get in for certain. But yeah, I um, I think the platform probably will survive in some sh- way, shape, or form. It's just that I think you have to ask yourself the question, what do you want out of Twitter? And if, you know, y- you may think, and it's, it's it's certainly one point of view, uh, I don't hold it, but it's a, it's a legitimate argument to come from that, you know, Twitter was too big of a company and they were spending too much time on on things that, that, that people may say is wasteful or, or not necessary to run the platform, including the extensive committees they had to review content. Or you could make the argument that um, what was happening with governments... Uh, um uh, uh uh or what happened with governments and the the what someone might call collusion between social media companies and, and places like the c d c may violate some sense you have as well um but it, the platform will change and um i I didn't share this particular article uh or I'm sorry, we don't have time to go into the deep part of this article related to Twitter, but the other thing that that we we know from the last couple of days is that Twitter has um uh, 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 locked out a lot of third-party apps. And it used to be when Twitter first started that uh, anyone could access the so-called API and could create all sorts of ways for you to... um uh, uh, kind of interface with Twitter without having to use the Twitter client itself. And out of that was an extraordinary number of really innovative things. And a lot of those things that, that are part of Twitter today were kind of invented parts of third-party apps that they uh kind of brought into the mother system. <clears throat> well, for the last several years, um, third-party apps were severely limited um and so uh, the functionality has gone down and now they, they they're they're being locked out in some cases and what the article is, is, that that I'm sharing tonight is talking about um it's from 95 mac uh, yesterday is that um in some cases developers are just being told uh, either no answer or vague answers. And in a lot of cases, they've developed a lot of infrastructure around serving this app up and Twitter just kind of pulled the rug from under them and that nine to five Mac article says it's 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 uh very disrespectful um to the developer community and the developer community is large and I would imagine likes Twitter quite a bit and so I think being careful about that is 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 something that Elon Musk is gonna have to worry about as well.
0: Uh, some good dialogue going on in the chat. Um, we had a story here, if you scroll back a little bit, that uh, Betsy shared that for Martin Luther King Day, she invited her students to write a paragraph dream about kids in their future. And more than one wrote about less tech screen time and their middle schoolers. And that's kind of maybe a sign of the times thinking about. Um, I love that, though, because yeah. we need the young people of today to dream about all kinds of things in terms of, of a better, better present um, and the roles in which, you know, social media and, and screens play is, uh, is pretty big. Um, Alexander Slag, who's in the chat, welcome, uh, is uh, also trying to move to Mastodon. Um, you know, it's different user experience. Peggy is asking how in Mastodon do we handle the switch uh, between you know, from Twitter when connections aren't on, it's not perfect. Uh, it certainly isn't. And there's a lot of folks that are not there, and it really does feel like starting over in some ways, but there's also uh, kind of a cool vibe with that. But, um, yeah, I think that this, this is going to continue to be a topic of discussion. But to your point about this article, Jason, in that article and some others, like it's not accidental. This isn't just like, oh, sorry, we, uh, we messed up. You know, we, we fired that person or that person doesn't work for us anymore. And that didn't work. No, there's some intentionality to uh, what Twitter has done. And it's, it's really, you know, harmful in terms of these companies that have built platforms around Twitter. Ultimately, I guess Twitter is probably hoping to, to monetize maybe, More, they, they've got to, right? They've got to find ways to not bleed so much money. But, uh, Peggy's asking if we stay on Twitter and, and post on both. I, I am, uh, cross posting for the most part. Um, but I'm engaging in a lot more conversation. And that's one of the things that I've really enjoyed about Mastodon is I've, I've had a lot more interactions, you know? Um, we're all busy, you know, there's, there, it's a, it's, it's a busy information landscape, but I've found the, uh, interactions on, on Mastodon to be a little bit more, a little bit like the early days of Web 2.0 and that kind of thing, but at this point, I'm I'm not completely abandoning it. But I think that will that day will be coming soon. I was actually working tonight on my if this then that recipe to take tags that I put Ed, EdTechSR to, and then I uh, append those links to a Google Doc that I can transfer for our show. And so, anyway, there, uh, you can make any Mastodon channel into an RSS feed by simply adding .rss to the end of the channel address. And then there's a recipe that you can, you know, take a, a RSS feed and then, you know, send it to a Google doc and whatever. So that's geekiness. Uh, But it's ways that I've been using social media now for a number of years, as I find articles, I share them, I collect them, you know, and, and then, you know, we'll take some of them over there. So that's one of the things that I've needed to do before abandoning Twitter is work out, you know, figure out how my workflows can not be dependent on Twitter and, Anyway, I'm getting close. Got to talk about an AI, AI article, Doctor Knifer. Yeah, at the end, I, but
1: I, I would say um, actually, if you would be willing to share that that Tory Trust slide deck, which is excellent. Uh, yes, way, but yes. I just wanted to share a thread from this week, and I've I've been talking about AI, um, you know, for five six hours a a week for for uh, uh, over a month now, and and I want to be really clear about something, and I so I had to say this earlier today too. I'm not the guy that says that this is going to change the world, right? That's just not really how I present to the world. And in fact, if anything, uh, there's been a lot of disappointment, uh, in, in, in my humble opinion of where technology has taken us. Um, we're, we're doing okay. And I think there's a lot of cool things you can build with technology to support a, a classroom, but there's some non-technology things that I also have some mojo that are, are important to talk about. I say that because. I believe that generative AI will change education more than anything else in the last 20 years. And that uh, I I would almost go back as far as to say Google would be included in that, but in a lot of ways, the kind of search engine model of Google seems so quaint in a world where um, you can ask a question and it will just generate the answer, not an answer. And so, uh, these are a huge deal, right? And so I want to make sure that this is why we keep talking about them, because I think that this year, education is going to be significantly impacted. But what I want to share tonight, it's a tweet, um, from uh, Tiffany Pelletier, uh, uh, Dr. Tiffany Pelletier, who is, um, uh, uh, a learning or a learning delivery specialist at Northwest Regional Educational Laboratories, I think. And, um, the NWEA, a not-for-profit leader in advancing student growth and systematic change. So, um, she, um, uh, used chat GPT to, um, create IEP goals and then provide rationales for the goals. And if this isn't such an extraordinary, um, uh, uh thing, because it just shows you, like, yeah, it's not perfect right now, but, that's an example of a superpower that AI could bring to you as a teacher. Um, and I've been on some of these meetings uh, writing these goals and the rationales behind them. And it just was, uh, it's tedious work. And that's why that sometimes these documents don't end up as personalized as they should be.
0: And it's an example of living as augmented humans. Yes. If you think you're going to want to go to a doctor in the next, in your lifetime from now on, that is not going to want to take advantage of a tool that has read every single research article. What'll be interesting is when, if the degree to which we can ask the AI to point back at itself in the black box and explain itself. For instance, if, you, you know, the, your doctor says, oh, there's going to be a drug interaction with this. <clears throat> I think the doctor needs to be able to say, can you give me the uh, research articles, you know, that indicate this to be able to prove where did you get that information? From what we learned uh, from the open AI, uh, you know, upper level employee in November that came to our school uh, talking about it, that already is something that 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 chat GPT and these tools are are able to do. But I think that is a great example. We had an, an after school meeting today where it was mentioned and we had, I think, one of our administrators sending out a note to at least all faculty and staff, maybe to the entire community in our school about chat GPT um, and, you know, somebody was saying, hey, it can just write any essay for you. And, and I also point out, yeah, and it can also take any, you, you know, essay that you have and and write that so that a sixth grader could understand it or, you know, rewrite that for, for whatever. Our show, the not the last one because I'm still a couple behind, but whatever, uh, two, what is it, 198, uh, whatever, two, I don't even remember what it is. Um, our last show that is on uh, our website, 278. Chat GPT generated summary, took the entire transcript of our entire show and generated a pretty decent um, summary, which I, which I tweaked a little bit. This will take us just a little beyond the hour, but uh, I want to share two really quick. The first one's not a news article. It's a blog post, but it's by Dutch educator Iris Van Rouge. This was on um, January 14th. And, uh, Iris, and I'm not sure pronouns, um, so I won't guess. Um, Iris says, stop feeding the hype and start resisting. And basically, this is an article written in English, which is, uh, reminiscent a little bit of the folks that were saying, Hey, all these web 2.0 tools that you guys are, that you guys, that you all guys and gals, everybody, uh, is, you know, just so excited about. Wait a minute. What, what's the impact? Let's not just, you know, leap headlong into it. Uh, Iris is saying that we need to be deeply troubled. When we see the negative impacts that different AI systems, facial recognition systems, uh, other kinds of, uh, as Iris writes, human interlocutors that are imputing meaning where none, where there is none, um, you know, can be misleading and it can lead to abuse and and basically there can be a lot of problems. So. You know that's going to be part of the landscape as well. I thought that was a very good sort of contrarian uh view to take that wasn 't just talking about hey it's going to write essays we've got to you know block it and ban it and 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 make our lives you know go back to normal. Uh, this was getting a little deeper into some of these issues uh, that are highlighted and then the one that Jason asked me to share that I put in there is a slide deck from Tory Trust, and this is a tweet. Uh, that you can take a look at the only thing I'm, you know, concerned, not concerned, but I was like, why did you do a portrait style, uh, you know, layout on this? I'm like, I've never, why would you do that? Because anyway, I'm always using a regular standard television or, or projector. Um, uh, but it's called chat GPT in education. And it talks about the basics of chat GPT, uh, privacy, trustworthiness, uh, the fact that it makes stuff up, free labor, what it can do and not do, what educators can do and, and additional resources. And it's a 37-slide Google slide deck. So uh, I, th- I think next month I'll be sharing something with our faculty about this. I would also point everyone to Jason's wakelet that he continues to maintain of resources related to ChatGPT. And let's just go ahead and do another plug for the NCC conference because, folks, if you'd really like to hear the wise Yoda of EdTech, the EdTech Yoda of the North, as he's known, I think, just north of the whole Mason Dixon line, he'll be pontificating on this in the keynote at NCCe. So yep,
1: March twenty-first to twenty-third uh, in Tacoma, Washington, and NCC.org/slash/conference twenty uh, twenty-three to sign up. And I think the uh, yes, early oh. Siri. Is, hey, Siri's going to help you. Uh, is, Siri, you check in tonight. Um, I believe the early word pricing is ending in a few weeks. So uh, check that out now.
0: Okay. That has taken us five minutes past the show. We've got to do some geeks of the week. I do want to let everybody know that you can subscribe to our Substack, which is something that we've just been doing for a little while. But that's a way, uh, if you don't just want to go to the Google Doc, um, you can see that the articles that we talk about are not only in the live chat, which is archived in both Facebook and YouTube, uh, we're now in the practice of bolding the articles as we talk about them in our show notes, but the Substack newsletter, which you can get when we end up publishing those, which isn't right away, uh, but anyway, you can do that because we've got the links that we talk about as well as those we do not. So, Dr. Neifer, you have a Geek of the Week for us. Yes. Uh, I'd just like to
1: share kind of an a, a interesting a phenomenon. Um, I'm always, you know, uh, in the market for a good USB-C charger and uh, uh the, some of the nicely designed ones, or at least, uh, the ones that, that have novel designs, oftentimes, you know, you don't know if it's a legit USB-C hardware or not. And so one of the strategies I've utilized recently is, uh, Apple, now that, that USB-C charging has been around for several years, you can, uh, pick up, uh, a used, uh, Apple USB-C charger for a song. And, um, uh, uh, I wouldn't just go on eBay. And type Apple USB-C charger because there's a lot of, of of knockoffs on there. But if you limit it down to just used versions of them, you can pick up a 96 watt charger for if you if you shop around for as little as 20 bucks, uh, uh, including shipping. And it's not only going to be really high quality, you know, it's going to adjust really well up and down because there's great hardware sitting inside an Apple USB-C charger. So it's a kind of a little hardware hack, you might say.
0: Awesome. And Peggy, thanks for asking about that link. I put the link to Jason's uh, AI about or his wakelet about AI and OpenGPT. Uh, and lastly, let's let's end on a positive note. Um, our school made national news tonight uh, because. I'm to play the audio right there. Um, this is just an absolutely lovely maker ed story. So uh, one of our math teachers Um, has a eight-year-old golden retriever who had cancer last year. And Bentley um, basically faced either losing a a front leg or um, needing to be put down. And so uh, Ashley decided to amputate the leg. And so Bentley's been hobbling around on one leg. And uh, students in one of our high school maker education STEM classes learned about this and took on the challenge of making a prosthetic leg. So we had news crews at school today uh, shooting this and it was on the local WCNC ABC affiliate here in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it made the national news. So there's the link. It's very heartwarming, very cool to see uh, students being able to apply their maker and design and creativity skills and aptitudes to be able to solve some problems. And uh, that's pretty cool. So, Dr. Knifer, when you are not here, where can people connect with you? If, for instance, they might like to connect with you on Mastodon. Yes, you could go to mastodon.cloud slash knife,
1: N-E-I-F, or I'm still kind of kicking on Twitter, tech-savvy-teach. What about you, sir? Okay,
0: uh, I am, uh, W Fryer on Mastodon.cloud, but you can get all my links at westfryer.com slash after. This has been the EdTech Situation Room, a bit of a longer show because normally we are just an hour and we've got an hour and eight minutes tonight, but we are on Wednesday evenings at 9 p.m. Central 8, sorry, 9 p.m. Eastern. Uh, 8 p.m. Central, 7 p.m. Mountain, 6 p.m. Pacific, and sometime in the middle of the night, UTC. You can check out all of our links and show notes a couple different ways by going to edtechsr.com slash links. You can also find the link in our show notes there um, for each of our episodes to sign up for our, our, uh, what is it called? (laughs) <laughs> it's really bad when you're giving the one AR and your brain just goes blank. You're Substack. Yes, we have a Substack newsletter um, and you can get it other ways as well. But Twitter is still a great way to follow us. We're not giving up Twitter. Um, and who knows, maybe we won't give up Twitter, but that's uh, usually the place as well as on Facebook when we're going to share any kind of changes, because sometimes we do need to postpone or even cancel a show. But generally, we're here, and we want to thank everybody for your participation. We had three folks in the live chat room tonight, so thanks to uh, everybody that joined us there. And uh, if you can join us live, we'd love to have you. Even if you don't, you can always reach out to us. We encourage you to stay savvy, stay safe, and, uh, you know, keep sharing resources because it's one of the transformative ways that we continue to learn in the 21st century. Have a great week. Good night.